Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I am your host, Pat Wright, and this is going to be a show like none other. We are so fortunate to have a guest on our show who is very, very experienced with opera. It is my pleasure to welcome opera conductor, maestro Joseph Rechino. Welcome. Thank you, and you pronounced my name perfectly. Oh, good, because I was a little worried. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I promise that I will probably mispronounce a few things as we go along, but I didn't want to get your name wrong, so thank you for that. Well, Maestro Mm Rachino, for all of you, I want you to know he has a long history in conducting opera, but he also has a book that I have just finished reading called Conducting Opera, where theater meets music and that subtitle gets at the heart of what I love about opera so we're going to spend some time talking about Mm -hmm. the book but before we do let me give a a nicer introduction um, other than saying I'm just so thrilled that you're here maestro Um, you have had a wonderful career conducting opera in many many places you have worked as the principal artistic advisor, principal conductor with the Florentine Opera Company, and also as the music director uh, in Montreal with, I'm probably not going to pronounce this one properly, I'll let you say it. L'Orchestre Metropolitain. Oh, there we go. The Metropolitan Orchestra. Orchestra. Right. Right. <laughs> Lovely. Um, but you've done guest conducting many, many places as yes. well. To name a few, eight productions with New York City Opera, five productions with Washington Opera, one production each with Chicago Lyric, Seattle, six productions with Opera Theater of St. Louis, eight or nine productions with the Montreal Opera, three with L'Opera de Québec, with Quebec City, a couple with Vancouver, four with Pittsburgh, a couple with Virginia, one with Philadelphia Opera. A lot. Also, I must say, I, I also conducted in Tokyo I, uh, and in Hong Kong and with uh, two different operas with Hungarian State Opera, with Catania in Italy, with uh, L'Opera de Marseille in, in France. We're going to have a little bit of conversation here, but then once we, once we talk about a few things, mm-hmm. uh, just about being an opera conductor and working with opera companies mm-hmm. and understanding, well, sure. everything we can cover in this first half of the show... Then we're going to turn to one particular opera that you have experience with, mm-hmm. Richard Strauss' opera, Ariadne Aufnaxos. So that's coming up. Mm-hmm. But right now, let's, let's talk about how does one become an opera conductor or a conductor of any sort, a symphonic conductor? Well, one could say there are as many ways to arriving at becoming a conductor as there are conductors. <laughs> but... What I can say is how I arrived at becoming a conductor. I was in somewhat of a unique situation because I was exposed literally while I was still in the crib. My grandfather played trumpet at the Metropolitan Opera for 36 years, and he began very young. He began at 17. Wow. A few months before I was born, 
he had to leave the orchestra because he became hard of hearing and he couldn't continue playing trumpet in an orchestra. Uh, I was the first of his grandchildren and maybe out of frustration, out of pride of becoming a grandfather, he sat by my crib and before I could say a word, he spoke to me and spoke to me and spoke to me. And by the time I was about one, I could speak before I could walk. Wow. I could speak in two, in two languages because he spoke to me both in English and in Neapolitan dialect, which is quite close to, to uh, regular Italian. And once that happened, he started to show me music. And so he started to show me what the notes were, what was solfeggio, which is sight singing, but he used the Italian and French method, something called fixed do, so that when you sing do, it's not as in movable do, the tonic of the key you happen to be in, but it's always C, the note C. And if you say re, it's always the note D. And so you're singing the real notes. And of course, it's it's this method you can solfege in 12-tone music, in atonal music, where there is no tonic and dominant. And you can transpose, because if you're singing in treble clef, the letter C, the note do, is a certain place on the staff. If that's then tenor clef, that note is actually a B, an octave, and a note lower, and so forth. So by the time I was about four, I could sight sing using the real notes, but using a solfeggio, the uh, fixed do, in four clefs. Oh my, so that's another language. Another, it's, another, <laughs> it's another language, and, and I could do this before I could read words. Wow. Because, because my grandfather was there with me every day. So then, in addition to my grandfather, my mother was a pianist, and uh-huh. my uncle was a very famous conductor. My uncle was both the co-founder of the Chicago Lyric Opera, and the Dallas Opera. Wow. And he was the one who first brought Maria Callas to the United States and conducted her American debut. He also mm-hmm. made about five recordings with her. He passed away in 2008. His name was Nicola Reschino. When I was nine and ten, actually it was right around my, my birthday, my tenth birthday, my father, who was a physician, wrote a note to my elementary school saying I was too ill to attend classes for about three weeks. Oh, were and, you? <laughs> yes, right. And instead, I went with my grandmother to Chicago mm-hmm. and watched the entire rehearsal process up to opening night of Trovatore that they were doing there with a cast, a historic cast. Oh. I mean, M- Maria Callas was was Leonora. Oh. Ebestiniani Ebe was Azucena. Yussi Beerling was Manrico. And Ettore Bastianini was Di Luna. And William Wilderman, American, was uh, Fernando. Oh, well, so, you would have truly been sick if you'd missed that. So Right, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Preventative medicine. Right. And... Uh, <laughs> And so I was there for about three weeks, including from the very first day, the very first music rehearsal, all the way up to the opening night. And who gets to experience that when they're 10 years old? Oh, my, but yes. But I was lucky enough to be able to. And so I decided from then 
this is what I wanted to do. Yeah. So that that was that was my journey, which of course is in a way both a blessing and potentially a curse, because when you decide so young, this is what I want to do, mm. and it doesn't work out, it could really be terribly painful. Whereas uh, in my case, I was fortunate enough, it did work out. And uh, I told uh, some young people a few years ago, I said, I'm, I'm incredibly blessed. I spent my life doing something that I love. Mm. And and at the time, now it's 50 years, but at the time it was 40 years. And I'm still married to the same woman who incredibly, after 40 years, still loves me. So I've, I've been, I've been so fortunate and so blessed. Yes, that is, yeah. a, that is a blessed life. Well, and you've brought a lot of joy to a lot of people through music, and that is part of what music does. Oh, yeah. You know, um, there were a few people. My grandfather certainly was one. Uh, my mother was one. A wonderful composer who passed away in 2001 or two, a good friend, uh, Andre Prevost. These people believed in the redemptive power of music. Yeah. Because we know you have focused your career on the conducting of orchestras who accompany operas, how did you make that choice to focus on opera orchestras rather than symphonic orchestras? Well, I actually did do both. Out of my master's, which was in music at the Manhattan School of Music, for the next seven years, I conducted the preparatory orchestra. I was in some cases, only maybe six or seven years older than the than the young high school kids that were in the orchestra. Mm. And, and that was strictly symphonic. Then one of my first jobs was as assistant to Laszlo Hollis. He had been one of the founders and the first conductor of the New York City Opera. But at this point, he had left City Opera quite a, quite a number of years ago. And he had an orchestra on Long Island called the Concert Orchestra of Long Island. And I did about seven or eight symphony programs for him. It was a very interesting situation. He had about 24 or 25 very talented high school students. Hmm. And I would prepare them. I would rehearse them for four or five sessions of two and a half hours each or so. Then he would hire another 20 or so professional musicians and put them together. Wow. And if he was the conductor of that program, then he would conduct the joint group. Yeah. And they'd do a concert. Or if I was the conductor, then I would conduct the joint group for the two rehearsals and we'd put on a, a concert, usually in Hofstra University, but sometimes in some other venues. Yeah. But I was noticing that by then the, the offers I were getting were places like Seattle Opera, Washington Opera, Chicago Lyric. That's when I basically just switched really the majority of my attention into opera. I must say, I love both kinds of music. I think it's a terrible mistake. Un unlike Europe, they kind of pigeonhole you as either an opera person or a symphonic person. It's, it's you know. See, that's something I don't actually know. Is that is that true for conductors or conductors and musicians where you you really specialize in one or the other well in europe a person tends to do both and uh, actually oh. for most of the history of conductors in europe uh, you usually began in the opera house because there were more things to think about 
Oh, right. And yeah. it, it, it's a lot easier, actually, for a person with operatic experience to conduct. I mean, so he is conducting the, the overture and sometimes big orchestral sure. sections within the opera than a person who's only used to using uh, the orchestra <laughs> and then all of a sudden is, is thrown in with a bunch of singers. Well, because you have experience conducting both, how would you describe the difference between conducting a symphony and conducting an opera? If it's an opera in concert form, it's not too dissimilar. The real difference is when you have, you're in the pit and they're moving around. Right. And then it's then it's different. Then then there's a uh, different kind of coordination problems that, that if they're just standing in front of uh, a music stand with their music and just singing, it's similar to uh, a symphony. But those, obviously you have so much more exposure to this than I do, but I don't Maybe I just buy tickets at opera houses, mm-hmm. but I don't feel like I see those offerings as much. Oh, you mean a concert performance? A concert performance of an opera. I've seen them a few times, right. but they're not as often on the bill. No, no, uh, no, no. Opera companies usually don't do not do them. Or, or symphonic. Um, I guess I, I saw something coming up in the spring of 22 San mm-hmm. Francisco's doing a symphonic production of a Stravinsky opera. Yes, yeah, sometimes yeah, uh, you, you mean like uh, maybe like Oedipus Rex. Was that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think yeah. so. Yeah. Oedipus Rex sometimes is in fact it's more often given in symphonic form as in concert mm-hmm. form than 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 staged. I suppose then it could be in in that form it could be the purview of the opera company or the, right. the symphony. Right. The first time I did Rangolt I did it in symphonic form, just a concert form, but it was for, I think, the 20th, 20th or 25th anniversary of the Montreal Opera, and it was the last thing I did with my, my old orchestra, the Metropolitan, and it was the opera that presented it, but they had presented two or three operas that they weren't playing to stage. I think another one was like Lachme or something like that, as just in symphonic form. So a concert production of an opera is one alternative way to experience the drama. And I believe there are also other... And then, you know, there's also, depending on the size of the house, there are some wonderful reductions mm. of, of operas that can work very well. A teacher of mine called Anton Coppola, who passed away a few years ago, made very, very good reductions for about 30 operas of the standard repertory. And in some of the smaller houses, I've used them. Most recently in uh, 19, 2019, his reduction of Tosca for North Carolina Raleigh opera. And he, he reduces the opera, opera to about 43, 44 players we used. And the original, of course, you need about 60-some players. That's fascinating to know because it's just great to know that it can be presented that way. Yeah. And in his case, he, he did such a good job. It sounds virtually like the original. And also, remember, it's 43 players, but in a theater of 1,500 seats, mm-hmm. as opposed to, say, a, a theater of close to 3,000 seats. Just in volume and in things, it, it, it's, it, it, can be very, it can be very effective. Yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. So you've really had a lot of experience conducting some of these opera reductions designed to be performed in smaller venues. The first time I, I did Valkyra, the second uh, opera of, of The Ring, I did it in Milwaukee, and we did it in the original orchestration with over 90. In the orchestra, 90 players? In the orchestra, yeah, over 90 players. Mm. And then I did it, some years later in Virginia, and there the, the pit only holds about 50-some players, but a conductor called Alfred Hertz was the 
main German conductor in the early days of the Metropolitan Opera, in like 1905, 1906, whatever. And he reduced a number of the big Wagner operas to orchestras between 50 and 55 players. Oh, interesting. Because they toured. And in the theaters where they toured, very often they didn't have pits that could accommodate sure. these, these large orchestras. So he actually made a terrific reduction of the ring. And I did the Valkyrie in one of these reductions. And except for a little part of Act Two, what they call the uh, basically the, the announcement of death, Todesverkundigung, a scene between Brunhilde and Sigmund, there you could tell it wasn't the original because he alternated woodwinds and low woodwinds for, for one singer and brass for the other, whereas yeah. in the original there's so many more horns and more this, then it's, it's brass for both. But other than that one moment, and it was still very effective what he did. Sometimes using reductions, if the reduction is, is good, can work very well. Yeah, I think your comments on these reductions and these concert operas, it's a good reminder that there are really creative people out there. There are musicians, directors, producers, who come up with very interesting ways to make these operas available. So keep your eyes and ears open. You don't necessarily have to live near an enormous opera house or or even be next to a big opera company. Operas for everyone. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm Pat Wright, and you're listening to Opera for Everyone. Today's guest is maestro Joseph Rechino, who has conducted operas for many decades. I've read his book, Conducting Opera, Where Theater Meets Music, and also watched videos on his YouTube channel, which you can find by searching the title of the book, Conducting Opera, Where Theater Meets Music. And during this first hour of Opera for Everyone, he and I discuss a wide variety of opera conducting and music-related topics. On the second half of our show, Maestro Rochino and I will focus on Richard Strauss and his opera, Ariadne auf Naxos. Coming up, we discuss musicians outside of the orchestra pit, why a conductor might want to wrestle with an instrument, and why a conductor's initial angle of attack is different for an opera versus a symphony. And oh, that music? That's Maestro Rossigno playing a piano version of a section of Wotan's Farewell from Wagner's The Valkyrie. Thank you. 
there's one thing I read in your book mm-hmm. when you're talking about the orchestras and the players and something that doesn't happen as often these days, and I found fascinating mm-hmm. because I was not aware of it at all, a term called the banda, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. You are. I did not know this term. Occasionally you will see someone playing an instrument outside of the orchestra pit, but Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that this was a topic worthy of discussion, and I found this a fascinating topic. When I started, even the regional companies, if a composer wrote music to be played by a banda, that is a group of people off stage, and all kinds of operas have it. Traviata has it, Rigoletto has it, Otello has it, Tosca has it, Carmen has it. There's a big band in Rosencavalier. There is offstage music in Tristan. Almost, I would say... Sounds like they all have it, right? Well, a lot of them. A lot of, them. <laughs> a lot of operas had it. And Strauss specifies what he wants in the band. Wagner specifies there are horns and, and then brass and uh, horns in, in Act Two, brass in, in Act One as a, as a banda. But if a city like Hartford, for example, if they were doing an opera that required a banda, in fact, when I started for the first two years, I was the rehearsal pianist, chorus master, and general totem of Hartford. <laughs> I didn't conduct anything. Well, actually, I did. I conducted two student performances of, of two operas. But it was done off stage. Then gradually, fewer and fewer, they, they would be played in the pit so that the, the, the company wouldn't have to hire extra musicians. And now, only the biggest companies are using them. The Met, of course, uses a bond every place it's, it's written. But more and more... The orchestra just keeps playing. And what I did in a number of cases is I made my own kind of reductions of banda so that it does sound much softer. Sometimes I would, instead of having a bunch of wind players, which which was the case usually in the bandas, say a traviata or something like that, I would have just a group of, of strings playing with mutes on. So it seemed like they that they were a little distant to give that impression. But nevertheless, still in the pit. In the pit. Oh, so you would imitate the bond. Right, right. But I really think it's it's a shame that, because one of the exciting things, especially, for example, a thing like uh, the Mass Ball or Nabucco or in, in Capulets and Montagues, Capulete Montecchi, you have a battle scene and you have brass players playing from off stage and then getting answered in the pit. It's almost like a battle happening musically wow. as well as visually. But to save money, they're, they're cutting more and more of these so are those decisions a conductor makes or the producers of the opera are making or you kind of have to negotiate a happy solution? To give a, I don't know, a diplomatic answer. It's basically, at this point, it's, it's usually a management decision. If I have the ear of the general director, and he, for example, in Traviata, after the Libiamo, after the Brindisi, you'll hear these chords and it's basically like a dance band in the other hall. And she says, oh, let's go, you know, move out. And, and that, oh, and that's after it. that fabulous drinking song, right, let's go right, dance. Right. And if you, if you go to the Traviata at the Met, for example, you'll hear it that way. But for those two, I realized you need about, to make it work well, you'll need about 15, 16 players. Now, I did a Traviata a few years back at Indiana University. And there, of course, they don't have to worry about paying the, the, the students to play. <laughs> so I did have about 16 people off stage 
doing sixteen. Yeah, doing the, doing That's the quite Bond a number. Up. Yeah, and the the stage director of that production had never done the opera with, with with that, and he says, "Oh my God, it sounds like there's an orchestra in the next room." I said, "Yes, that's exactly what it's supposed to sound like." <laughs> <laughs> Yay, we did you know, it! <laughs> and, and but uh, it used to be that I think ears were more sensitive, maybe a hundred years ago than than they are now, and and I think the other thing is that back. A hundred years ago, part of an education was learning how to play an instrument. Not not to be great at it, but just, you know. And uh, and that's why, among a certain level of, of education, people... I mean, they guess uh, there was a time when all, all these great works of the 19th century were brand new. They were going to see all this all this stuff. Yeah. And, and keeping so-called classical music as part of a living culture is essential. It's absolutely essential. It's like if there's a river and it starts at a spring, if that spring dries up, pretty soon there won't be a river. Mm. And new music is the, is the spring that keeps all music alive. But on the other hand, the reason sports are so popular is because most kids play it, a, a sport. And so they have a point of, of reference. And first, actually learning to play an instrument started to disappear. And then even just general education about music or about painting started to disappear from from schools. Yeah, when you were speaking about people not noticing and hearing, I was thinking ears need to be trained. And I don't think our ears, I don't think we have the opportunity and and the practice of listening to live music as much, because we have so much opportunity to listen to recorded music where you don't necessarily have the the space of, yeah we have stereos right. but we it's don't not, have it's not the same. a full it's not the same thing it's nice right. but it's yes. it's no, not absolutely. the same thing absolutely and the the banda experience you're not going to get that even with a an hd right. performance it's right. not it's just not happening there's another topic you raise in the book that i'm very curious about in your bel canto chapter mm-hmm. you speak about the tendency of the modern orchestras to tune a semitone or a whole tone higher than they did in the bel canto era, which makes things very tricky later on. And I thought, well, this is getting a little bit above my uh, non-musical training, but I thought that's a fascinating commentary that things are inching upward. Well, and and sometimes uh, the pitch is slightly different depending on where in the world you are. Ah. In 1969, I participated and actually wound up as one of the four finalists in a conducting competition in in Salzburg. And it seemed that the A there was almost closer to a B-flat in America than an A. In fact, they call it sometimes Baroque tuning. But a lot of pieces, uh, some of the tuning was uh, a half step lower than it is now. And of course, uh, for the instruments, raising a little bit the pitch makes to sound more brilliant. Mm. And that happened gradually, but also apparently there was a greater discrepancy in how they tuned from place to place, say in the late 1700s. Also, what was an appropriate A for church music, sometimes there could be a whole tone difference between music in a church or music in a village band. Who knew? Wow. In, in that area. This is something I know a little bit about, but not a real musicologist that can be uh, wow. very knowledgeable about this and tell you exactly. But your experience with it is real. Oh, right? yeah. You've got to deal with oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, 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 yeah. And 
I know that, uh, for example, singers, of course, singing in, in the Vienna State Opera was uh, a wonderful thing, but it also was, was a little taxing because, say, uh, in the 1960s, was a little higher there than it was in a place like La Scala. Fascinating. And not that far apart, honestly. Wow. No. Geographically. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That, that is fascinating. Okay. Back to the job of the conductor. Mm-hmm. You've told us how you became a conductor, which... Mm-hmm. By my just condensing this is good good birth placement, mm-hmm. <laughs> good nurturing, and a lot of mm-hmm. hard work. Right. And for example, I studied the piano and yes. composition very hard. When I was 19, I got to spend about a month studying with one of the great pianists and one of the most influential teachers of his time, Arturo Benedetti Michelangeli in, in Italy in, at the Academia Chigiana in Siena. And I played some things for him. And... Then he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to be a conductor. He became furious. He said, what do you mean? Uh, are you wasting my time? You don't, you don't, don't even oh, want no. to be a pianist. And I said, I said, Maestro, I really think that for a conductor, two things are essential. Mm. One is to really, I, I use the word wrestle, lottare, to wrestle with an instrument and really learn, learn it well. And, and the other is to study composition seriously and compose. That makes sense. And he, he bought that, and I, I had some lessons with him. And then for the next year and a half when I was studying in Italy, I worked with his assistant, a man named Alberto Neumann. But, I, I you know, I mean, it could be violin, it could be cello, it could be piano. But I, I think it's important for any musician to, to have worked hard on uh, an instrument. Yeah. That we all have in common. Most opera conductors tend to be pianists because your initial jobs in opera will be as an assistant playing rehearsals and doing that. Well, you mention in the book, by the way, I'm just going to back up and say one thing for the listeners about this Mm -hmm. book, because this book does many things. I, people who listened to me before on this podcast Mm -hmm. and this radio show know I'm not a trained musician. I'm not a musician of Mm -hmm. any kind. I love the music. I love opera. I love story. And I love the Mm -hmm. pulling it all together. And this book about conducting opera, where theater meets music, is approachable if you simply are interested in music, if you're interested in story and opera and mm-hmm. how that gets told through music. And you, your writing is so clear and so, I'm also an educator by background, yeah. and three cheers for the writing here. It's it's beautifully clear. I, I credit my wife. <laughs> oh, good. Completely <laughs> with this. Uh, she was a writer herself, yes. and I would write something and she kept saying, I don't understand uh, it. I know you can write this in a way that I, as a non-musician, because at first that was it was really just musical jargon and, and you know, yeah. stuff like that. And she just kept forcing me to rewrite, rewrite, rewrite until she Well, said, okay, I thank I can, her for that. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, I think it, it was it's wonderful, and also yeah. basically the book in its first idea was much much longer. It was maybe yeah. a thousand pages, and I had many. Yeah, no many, one panic. It's not right. a thousand pages. Oh no 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 no. It's no, no. So, yeah, it's so approachable. Yeah. It's so readable. And you you have things for people who want to be conductors in right. there. You have things for people who are musicians, and you have things for people who are simply interested in opera or in music or in how these things interact mm-hmm. with each other. And and I, I'm coming up with lots of questions because I have you here mm-hmm. to ask the questions sure. of, but but there are tons of other things that are covered in, mm-hmm. the, in the book. 
and I'm just so grateful for it. And we are going to get to Richard Strauss in particular sure. later on. Sure. One of the things you mentioned in the setting the stage right. chapter, step into my study, as mm-hmm. you call it, mm-hmm. which I love, is that you always start with the piano vocal score. And in line with your mentioning that piano is fundamental for you mm-hmm. as a starting place, as a conductor, is that typical for conductors or... Could you explain why that is is your okay. starting place? When I'm learning a symphonic piece, I start with the score. I don't start with a, re- a reduction. I just start, and I reduce it in my head and play it on the piano if I'm doing that, or I'm just studying it. With an opera, you have this whole aspect of the text and the drama, yeah. and, uh, and for that reason, I've never conducted an opera in Russian. I've never conducted an opera in Czech. If I can't at least read the language, Mm. then I'm not going to conduct it. Now, some people, you know, uh, I've occasionally conducted an aria, which is like a song in a a language that I don't speak, but then I translate each word and, you know, do that. But it's not the same when you're doing a whole theater piece. When I start out learning a new piece, I'll first just play it on the piano and just to get a feel for the the musical language. Then I'll read the text and then I'll put them together and say, well, why did the composer choose this kind of music for this dramatic or comedic situation? Right. And then by the time we get to the orchestra, it's built up in layers. Whereas with symphonic music, you don't have to worry about drama. It's, it's a different kind of drama. It's a, it's a drama that uh, sometimes is... Uh, I often have a story in my head, and I usually don't share it with the people in the orchestra, just sort of in my head. And it, it may not be the, uh, the intention of the composer at all. <laughs> For example, when I, I was doing uh, Mahler 4, I really felt the first movement was life. The second movement was a kind of bitterness and disillusionment about that life. The third movement was finally death and the end of life and the last movement with the the child in in heaven is uh afterlife that may not have been his intention at all but it was kind of like in the back of my mind when i was doing it. and the same with some other pieces but you have to be careful of that for example one of the beethoven sonatas that they call the moonlight some pianists play that first movement in a very dreamy, almost combination of, of romantic and impressionist way. And that may not have been his intention at all. I don't know. I mean, I don't think he gave the title Moonlight to it. And it, it could be played maybe a little faster and a little bit more detached and, and very, very differently. So sometimes you, you have to be a little careful. What we do have is with Beethoven's music is the advantage that he went back after the metronome was invented. He just loved the, the, the invention, and he put in the speeds that he thought. And this is early 19th century we're talking about. Yeah, I believe the, the metronome was, was invented something like 1868 or something, around that mm. time. And now a number of composers put in their own metronomes, that what they felt the, the music should go at. And I think that's very important to learn them and respect them. Most young people, myself included, didn't do that. But but as you spend more time, I think you begin to realize that the composer's ideas, for the most part, are more important than yours. And, yeah. <laughs> and sometimes you you can you know you can you can put a comma or add something, but you shouldn't contradict what he wanted. What becomes difficult is, for example, 
pre-metronome music like Mozart or Bach. Sometimes you, you have to, just by playing, come up with what you think is a, a correct tempo. Mm-hmm. Or a composer like Wagner, he put metronomes in up to the, the Flying Dutchman, but the majority of his, his great operas have no metronomes at all. And Flying Dutchman is relatively, comparatively, early yes, in his yes. output. Uh, and he did put metronomes in that, and but then he didn't use them ever again. In uh, one of his essays, he said, the chief duty of a conductor is to find the right speed. Yeah. And when he does, he'll find the right phrasing and the right meaning. He wants to make you work. Well, th- there is there is a lot to be said for that. And I remember my uncle, he drilled into my head the importance of always hitting as close to the same tempo once you've decided on the tempo. Yeah. Well, remember, you know, uh, yeah. feeling for it. And, and he said, nothing so affects the interpretation of a piece as the speed at which you take it. That makes sense to yes. me. Yes, yeah, it, it really does. does. It, really, it really does. Well, just listening to some popular songs, if you hear, mm-hmm. say in the last 10, 12 years, 15 years, you're hearing some people take a song that you were used to, you know, say a song from the 40s or 50s, at, a, yeah. at a more or less a certain speed. And if, well, if you heard a singer say, for example, I left my heart. In San Francisco, it's it's a different piece. It's kind yeah. of weird, actually. But, but I'm hearing that, <laughs> I, and with especially with Puccini, I'm hearing slower yes. and slower tempi, which kind of imposes breaths that really shouldn't be there because just to to, to sustain it. And whereas in other composers, like for example Mozart. I'm hearing Tempe so fast that oh, that that a lot of the charm and lyricism and beauty are lost. An allegro molto in Rossini can go like the wind. That's almost part of his style. But that same kind of speed in Mozart, you lose that that jewel-like quality of of, of the music. And this is all in the hands of the conductor. Well, the conductor's principal. I mean, the, we don't we don't sing, we don't play anything. <laughs> we, we basically set the speed. Well, but, well, you have that baton. Uh, but we we, we uh, uh, set the speed. <laughs> You're listening to Opera for Everyone, and that refreshing toast of music is Libiamo, the Brindisi from Verdi's La Traviata, played by today's guest, Maestro Joseph Rachino. He's even included some of the banda that follows it, and that's what you're hearing right now. Maestro Rachino is the author of a fascinating book, Conducting Opera, Where Theater Meets Music. On the second half of today's show, Maestro Rachino and I will discuss Richard Strauss and his opera, Ariadne auf Naxos. Lots more interesting conversation coming up as we finish up this first hour. But right now, listen closely for the three plinks. 
In this next segment, Maestro Rochino is going to explain how those three notes in the beginning of Musetta's Waltz from Puccini's La Boheme relate to a long-standing French theatrical tradition and might also make us think of a baguette, but not one you can eat. Okay, so here's something else I learned reading your book. The role of a professional conductor Mm -hmm. does not become popularized or de rigueur until mid-19th century or so, at different places? Different places. Strangely enough, one of the last places where conducting took place was in Italy. The composer would do the initial rehearsals for the world premiere, and he would sort of lead either from a piano or if he was a accomplished violinist maybe he'd play first violin and he'd be there for a couple of performances and then he'd leave and the work didn't belong to him anymore it belonged to the theater mm. and i can't remember the name now but there was a there was a conductor in like the 1820s early 30s from from the area around Rimini in, in Italy, who became like the first real conductor. Whereas earlier in Germany, there were conductors much, much earlier. Oh. And the same with uh, in France. Now, Lully, the uh, early Baroque uh, French composer, he kept time with a big baton. You know, uh, the word in French for the conductor's stick is not baton. It's baguette. It's the same thing as a, a bread. Oh, no, like a loaf of French bread. Right, right. <laughs> and and it, it's a small thing. The baton was a like a big wooden staff that boom, boom. In fact... Like one of those giant, like like what Votan carries, yes, like, like a giant walking right, stick. Right, exactly. <laughs> like a, and, and in fact, uh, the composer Lully accidentally hurt himself so badly it resulted in his death by he was banging, keeping time, banging this big thing in his foot and it developed gangrene and everything and pretty soon... Uh, oh, he's not tapping it on a music stand. He's banging it on the floor. Banging it on the floor. And in fact, <sighs> that was the whole, that was the whole trick in oh. the time of the, the French plays, Moliere or, 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 or Racine, or whatever, to announce that the play was beginning, they did three loud bang banging on with this big uh, baton. And I'm sure that Puccini did that on purpose. If you notice, Musetta's waltz begins with three little plunks of the harp. Bling, bling, bling. Quand. Oh, to announce the beginning. Right. And I think he was, he was kind of sort of like, well, the play's about to begin. It's her, it's her, <laughs> it's her moment. Oh, and uh, the more you know, the more you know. Oh, I love that. That's yeah. wonderful. That was part of the part of the theatrical tradition. Yeah. One of my entrees into it is also the words of the libretto. Right. And you speak about that 
in your book as well that you only like to conduct in languages that you at least read with fluency. Right, right. It's it's interesting. You you do phrase differently. It's it's important for the conductor in opera to be as involved with the words as he is with the notes. Mm. I made my debut with Opera Theater of St. Louis in 1984 with an opera called Madame Butterfly. Now, St. Louis does all of their operas in English, in translation. I guess that from the way you said the title. (laughs) And uh, they were having problems with the conductor because they were using a, uh, they were not doing the standard version of Butterfly. They were doing what is called the Brescia. Brescia is a city in in Italy. Now, uh, Puccini wrote Butterfly, and it was premiered at La Scala, and it was not a success. And he dropped it, and he really redid it. The the difference between version one and version two is huge. I mean, among other things, they're Americans now. In the first version, they were English, the non-Japanese. Oh, well, that harks back to the original story. Yeah. Right. And musically... He changed about maybe 30%. Now, with the Brescia, and then in the city of Brescia, he, they redid the opera, and it was a big success. Now, the version that you usually hear in, in theaters... Hang on, uh, it's New York City. <laughs> okay. The version you usually hear now is from Paris. It's the Brescia version with about 10 to 12 minutes of cuts that he put ah. in. So this was the Brescia version. And both the orchestra and some of the cast were having disagreements with the conductor. And so I had done Butterfly with this uh, lady who was singing Butterfly. I had done it with her just a month or two earlier in Milwaukee. And oh. she and the tenor who had also worked with me and the stage director who, who had worked with me asked if I could come in. And basically, I was kind of sight-reading the new music, but on the day off, I had it completely learned. And every, everything went fine. And after opening night, they there's a big tent, and people can talk with the, the singers and the conductor and other members, you know. And this lady on the board came up to me and said, is this the first time you're conducting Butterfly in English? And I said... Well, I'll be honest, I just got here three days ago, and um, they sang in English, but I conducted it in Italian in my head. <laughs> oh, that's hysterical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's you know, it kind of funny, but, uh, but usually that doesn't work very well. Uh, uh, even I mean, if you're doing an opera in translation, mm. you should learn the translation. Yes. <laughs> Luckily, this, this translation was quite good, and it phrased exactly mm. the same, but... <laughs> With Verdi, with with Donizetti, even with with someone like Richard Strauss, he changed sometimes. They the, the composers changed some of the notes when an opera was originally written in one language and then done in another language. Some of the notes were changed, and some of the rhythms were changed to fit the new translation. So yes, it's it's important to be uh, fluent with the text as well as the as the notes. I've read. And you could confirm or or set me straight. I've read that it was much more common, say, in the 19th century for operas originally written in one language with the composer and the librettist to when they would go to a different country where the the language was different 
for that language to be changed for the opera. And that's what you're speaking about, where the composers would say, oh, no, I need to readjust some things. Absolutely. And not just in the 19th century. Classic case in point, Dialogue des Carmelites, the Dialogue of the Carmelites, was written with a, a French libretto, but that was not the language that the world premiere was given in. The world premiere was at La Scala in Italy, and mm-hmm. and the composer, uh, Francis Poulenc, said no, he wanted it sung in Italian because it was an Italian-speaking audience, and the drama was absolutely a fundamental. And so Carmelites was first given as I Dialoghi delle Carmelitane, the Dialogues of the Carmelites in Italian. And uh, in this program that I've been doing in Italy between uh, 2005 and the present, a few years back, we did a performance of that opera. We went back to the uh, original Italian version that uh, that was given at La Scala and hadn't been given wow. since because for our audience, we do mm-hmm. the, the operas in, uh, in Italian. Mm-hmm. And Richard Strauss wrote a letter to Laszlo Hollas, who conducted the first Ariadne of Naxos in the United States. And, and Hollas showed me this letter from Strauss and said, try to at least do the prologue in English, because the audience will become impatient if they don't understand what's going on. Oh, from Strauss. From Strauss himself. As I say, Verdi and Donizetti wrote different versions. The Paris opera was so famous, and yet... Until well into the 20th century, all the operas were sung in French, whether they were French or not. At the Paris Opera. At the Paris Opera. And even in Germany and in Italy. When I was a student in Rome in 65, 66, I heard two important German operas. One was sung in Italian with Italian singers, and one was sung in German with mostly German singers. At at the Rome Opera, they were Salome in German, uh, with Anna Silia as as uh, Zalome and La Valkyria, the Valkyra. Oh, how funny! Sung in oh, Italian. What a treat! <laughs> and I also heard Faust sung in Italian. And oh, uh, I've got to say, I, I did notice that, at least for me, that the Romance languages mm. Faust sounded very nice in Italian. Sounded almost mm. like it was written in Italian. And who knows? Yeah, right. Faust. French. Whereas La Valkyria didn't quite work for me. Right. That's right. A, it's a bigger leap to go from German to right. Italian. The sounds are so different. But mm. also what began to change this that even smaller theaters in Europe are doing it in original language is because of the uh, invention of surtitles. Mm. Earlier, you mentioned Wagner. Yes. And I know that Richard Strauss mm-hmm. did some conducting of mm-hmm. Wagner's music. Oh, yes. Can you tell us anything about that? Richard Strauss, besides being a great composer, was also a great conductor and was well known as a conductor, especially in the early part of his career, uh, as as was Mahler. Mahler was more famous in his lifetime as a conductor than as a composer. And interestingly, Richard Strauss conducted the world premiere of Humperdinck's Hansel and Gretel and yes. and met his wife because she was the original Gretel. Oh, there's romance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's certainly, especially in some of the earlier tone poems, like uh, Death and Transfiguration or maybe Don Juan, a, a, a similarity. Yeah. Richard Wagner influenced all of 
serious Western music for 60 or 70 years at least. Richard Strauss, in his opera Zanove, quotes Wagner. Now, today, we seem most interested in his grand four opera cycle, The Ring of the Nibelung. But the opera that really shook Western music was his opera Tristan and Isolde. Mm. It was the most adventurous harmonic opera in his harmony that he wrote. And Strauss quotes this opera at the beginning of Salome. Now, this is the motive of the Tristan theme. Strauss quotes it with a tiny little change. He changes by a half step the first interval. He does this. And then a little later. I will play the opening orchestral section, naturally reduced for piano. And in the fourth measure, a tenor begins to sing. I will spare you that. same time as Strauss was writing Salome, Claude Debussy wrote a delightful suite for young pianists called the Children's Corner Suite. In the last movement of this suite, he also quotes the Tristan theme, but only to laugh at it. Maestro, thank you so much for playing all that beautiful music. So this is more than 50 years after Tristan has debuted, and this is just a, an indication of the pervasive influence of Wagner among the creators of music. Absolutely. And remember also that certain musicians like to quote other musicians, yeah, or sometimes themselves. Mozart quotes himself in Don Giovanni in, in the final scene, playing, playing dances and entertaining Giovanni as he's eating. And the last one they play is a little bit of the Marriage of Figaro. And uh, Leporello says, well, I know this piece well. 
And is that being done for a dramatic, making a dramatic point? No. Or just for fun? I think, I think for fun. And for example, Puccini in the opera Tabarro, the, the cloak, quotes himself. Someone is talking about selling different things. They're in Paris. They're a barge tied up on the Seine. And the last one is, and the story of Mimi. And here's a tiny little quote from Bohem. Oh. In his, and in his operetta, his one operetta, La Rondine, mm-hmm. one of the characters says, well, the girl that I want has to be absolutely sensational. It has to be like Francesca or Berenice or Salome. And the clarinet quotes, da 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 the little, the little motive of Salome. Salome, be careful what you ask for there. Right. Well, My yeah, goodness. Well, well, yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so that was not unheard of. But boy, Tristan, Tristan really put its stamp, and Wagner in general, put, put its stamp on, on music all over, all over Europe. Yeah, and it's a little like a, a modern pop culture equivalent is they do that in film all the time where lines get quoted in films. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily for dramatic purpose, but the audience gets just a little giggle and a little bit of enjoyment of recognition. Like, yes. oh, I saw that one. Yes, absolutely. And somebody who hasn't seen those, you miss it, no harm done. But if you if you recognize it, you just, you know, you're a little bit proud of yourself, you enjoy it. Oh, sure. Remember that opera was a much more popular form. Yes. At this at this point, it was it was closer to what Broadway is today. Or going to the movies. Or going really. to the movies. And remember, the the American Broadway theater really grew out of Viennese operetta and, and German opera. Yes. And, and... Well, the, the musical yeah, portion the of music, it anyway. Right, right, right. Oh, yes, not, not the straight plays. That's something completely different. That was, but yes, that's always been part of, of theater and art was quoting other people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Literature, too, yeah. for that matter. Well, I think we need to work our way towards the second half of our show and our discussion of the Richard Strauss opera, Ariadne auf Naxos. That sounds great. And while you're still at the piano, could I ask you to play us out with the finale? listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. It airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast, where you can find a rich trove of past episodes. Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Thank you.
Welcome back to the second half of today's Opera for Everyone. I am your host, Pat Wright. Today I am joined by a very special guest, Maestro Joseph Rachino, who has conducted operas all over the world for many decades. He has written a book and also has a YouTube channel, both of which can be found under the title Conducting Opera, Where Theater Meets Music. And now, welcome back, Maestro. Thank you. Good to be back. Oh, it's a thrill to have you here. And thank you so much for sharing so much about all of your experiences and your insights with working with different composers and orchestras. And I'm so thrilled to learn so many different pieces to the point where we don't even get to have an opera helmet quiz because we don't have any plot to summarize. And I'm certainly not going to try to summarize your life. So... For those of you who love the Opera Helmet quiz, you're just going to have to wait for a a longer discussion of an opera, but we're going to launch into a very interesting and unusual opera by Richard Strauss, Ariadne auf Naxos. And this is the opera that he wrote with his very famous, very successful partner librettist, Ugo von Hoffmannsthal, who was a very successful playwright poet in his own right before he partnered with Strauss. But this is the show that they came up with. It had a few complications before it came to its final form. Well, final is probably not the right word, but it's its usual form in terms of production. But I understand that this particular opera tends to use a smaller orchestra as well. So can you tell us a little bit about how this came into being, this usual way that we see Ariadne Mm -hmm. and also this smaller orchestra and and how that works in an opera house. Yes. The first version of what is now Ariadne was as incidental music to the play Le Bourgeois Gentilhomme of Molière. Molière, the French playwright. Right. Great, Great comedy. And Strauss wrote incidental music, which now is rarely heard, but for example, Beethoven wrote incidental music to the play Egmont, Mendelssohn wrote incidental music to Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream, and in this case, Strauss wrote incidental music to the play Bourgeois Gentilhomme, which was performed then in in German. And this was a translation or an interpretation by Hofmannsthal. Yes, by Hofmannsthal, his translation of of the uh, Molière, and what is predominantly the second act of Ariadne, was diversion, musical diversion that Monsieur Jourdain in in the Moliere gave. And besides, he wrote quite a few other bits of just straight music, but because it was music for a play, it was conceived of a, as, a, as music for a smaller group, a group in the mid-30s in size, not the not the 106 that comprised the original orchestra of, of Salome or the 115 wow. that comprised the original version of Electra. Wow. It's 105, 106. Is that large for a typical opera? Oh, absolutely. It's huge. Yeah. It's huge. The, the biggest Wagner orchestras are in the ring, and they are like maybe 90 between 92 and 96 players. Okay. But, but Strauss, <laughs> Strauss outdid him. But not with Ariadne. <laughs> no, not with Ariadne. So you needed uh, basically a musical theater size orchestra as mm. accompaniment for a play. Well, it, it wasn't completely successful because the people that really loved the play, that went for the play, 
were saying, why is there so much music? And the people that came for the music says, why is there so much play? Apparently, between the music and the play, it was like a six-hour evening. And, right. uh, and, and so what Strauss did was he took most of the incidental music, not all, but most, that was not involved with the big presentation, which is part two of Ariadne, and he made a suite out of that, a, a very nice suite, and it's called the, the suite to the Bourgeois Gentilhomme. Uh, in fact, I even performed it once myself in 1997. Oh, excellent. Well, no good music gets wasted then. Nice. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then uh, Hoffman style came up with the prologue to justify the second half that he already had written. And it's sort of a crazy comedy and tragedy happening simultaneously, which was part of the original idea that the man who is the uh, the bourgeois who, who wants to take on heirs gets everything confused. Yes, this bourgeois gentilhomme, this uh, wannabe gentleman. Wannabe, right. And so Hoffman Sal wrote this prologue, this text, to justify why is there such a strange second act. And why mm. the... And the first version, though, was even longer than what is done presently. The Zerbinetta's aria, which is one of the great showstoppers in, in the whole literature, uh, lasts about 11 and a half minutes. And in the original version, lasted even like 14 minutes. And Zerbinetta is one of our female leads. Correct. So that's the backstory. And, and that's another reason he kept the opera as a, a chamber opera when it was done, because already with World War One, although the original play was done before World War One began, uh, with World War One going on, and then later with the uh, they they used the word Spanish influenza, but there was a a pandemic in 1919 and and 1920 that was extremely serious, uh, kind of like our COVID situation today. Mm. Uh, many famous composers like Stravinsky and Strauss and others were writing chamber opera, uh, orchestral pieces, not these great huge orchestras that uh, even Stravinsky, the, the the great ballets that he wrote, especially uh, Petrushka and, and uh, Rite of Spring, were for very large orchestras too. And previously, Strauss had written uh, Salome and Electra for gigantic orchestras. And Rosenkavalier, when I did it, I did it with uh, 84 players. Wow. Uh, it's a big orchestra. Electra's huge. It's 115. Wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So that's how the size of the orchestra came to be with uh, Ariadne. It's, it's so interesting. It starts out as this Moliere play mm -hmm. translated into German by this talented playwright, librettist, poet, gets his friend to write the incidental music and then an opera as this culmination mm -hmm. for this wannabe gentleman. Right. And then it gets transformed again and it's 1912 Correct. in its first incarnation. Correct. And the, but it, then it's the 1916 version, mm -hmm. which premieres in Vienna, which is the version we most most often, but not exclusively, see these mm -hmm. days. Yes, I, I'm not completely sure of the of the date. There was an earlier version that was a little longer of Ariadne mm -hmm. right. uh, that uh, that was cut down a little bit. It's a little bit like Madame Butterfly, where there were three versions, and the big change was between version one and version two in Butterfly, and the difference version two and version three was just he put uh, uh, Puccini himself sanctioned about 10 minutes of cuts. Oh my. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these, yes, as long as the composer and librettist 
are still around, they right. can change their works as sure. they see fit. Oh, sure. And it's a little confusing to an audience member because you experience it as two acts, but that's not what it's called. It's called a prologue. Correct. And a one-act opera. <laughs> right, right. Well, in this case, that's a very that's a very apt description because it's a little bit like the play Noises Off. We uh, we get to meet the we get to right. meet the the that's uh, good yeah the actors as actors and then backstage backstage and then we see what they're putting on. That's that's excellent. I like that analogy, and and in this case, the backstage is a room in the home of the richest man of Vienna. Right. And he has hired entertainment for Mm -hmm. a grand feast that he's holding. Mm -hmm. But the twist here is that it's this mashup of two kinds. Well, there's actually three kinds of entertainment, one of them being fireworks to be held promptly at 9 Mm -hmm. p.m. But there's two kinds of entertainment. Yes, there is a musical comedy, not musical comedy, Comedia uh, dell'arte is uh, an Italian comic troupe that had some music involved in it. Uh, it, it was uh, its heyday was uh, in Venice in the early 1700s. Then, these recognizable characters, these stock characters. Oh yes, Harlequin, Scaramuccio, Truffaldino. All these these were stock characters in this comedy and even when they were writing plays about other characters mm-hmm. they used the recognizable stock character so yeah. that if so the hero would be played by harlequin and yeah. the bumbler would be played maybe by scaramuccio and so they they had qualities and they were also uh, kind of dancer acrobats these people that that performed in these comedies so they had stuck because we all love physical comedy right, right? exactly exactly <laughs> and that was going to be one entertainment and the other entertainment was a serious opera based on the story of uh, Ariadne and Bacchus and the original idea was they thought the people that first the serious opera would happen and then the comedy would follow. And after all of this, at precisely nine o'clock, yes. there would be a display of fireworks. Yes. And when they realized that the dinner just was going on a little too long. Right, because there's this major domo, the right. speaking role in Correct. the, it's a non-singing role in this Correct. opera. Very important though, because we never see this very wealthy man. He, he is represented. Well, sometimes oh. you do. Uh, ah, tell me. I, I conducted this opera three times in three different cities. Twice, it was the same production. It was updated from, from Vienna of 1760 to London of 1920. And instead Fun. of a Comedia dell'arte, it was a, an English musical troupe. Perfect. And, uh, <laughs> and what they did was the whole prologue was given in English and act two, the serious music was sung in German and the comedy was sung in English. Lovely. And at the very end, when the final orchestral page of music, after they stopped singing, they got, get into this boat, Bacchus and Ariadne start flying up to heaven and we had a real fireworks display that there was a company in Chicago it looked like it was really fireworks, but it wasn't. It was all oh. done with projections and everything, but but it was very effective. And Stage um, fireworks, excellent. Yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah, it really worked. And the other production I did was in Boston. They also 
decided because the prologue can be kind of difficult if, when it's done in German. There's, a, there's also a lot of right. talking because of the major domo. There's a lot of explanation about right. what's happening. Yes. And so that was given in English. And then the second act, they kept the uh, comedy in English and the serious opera in German. But that was set in the 1750s. That was the, a, a traditional visual, visual production. And no fireworks. But I love the fact that in one production, we had actual fireworks at the end. It was really terrific. Spectacular. Spectacular. Yeah. Well, needless to say, in its original production with Hoffmannsthal and Strauss, it's all in German. Right, of course. That's and, which was the, their and audience. It was the, it was the, it was the <laughs> audience. And the reason it's crazy combination of going from comedy to, to tragedy, they realize that the dinner was lasting too long. As I say, in the version that I did, that first one updated, you saw the people eating, and then you saw the oh. you saw the head of the, the grand uh, seigneur, the head of the house with his wife oh. on the side of the stage with some friends watching the play. It was you know part of the set. And Zerbinetta, in her aria, she at one point walks right up to him and sings some of it to him. Oh, because uh, she's just a flirt and a half, isn't right, she? Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> she's the head of the comedy troupe, we should she's add. The head, she's the head of the comedy troupe and uh, one of the great parts in, in opera, as, yeah. as, as Ariadne is, the, the two yes. of them. It's really a fantastic piece of music. Well, similar, I, I mean, we... We can't spend too much time comparing it to mm-hmm. other Strauss works, but but similar to Rosen Cavalier, you have three strong female voice roles here. One of them being what we sometimes call a pants or trousers role. Exactly. The composer. The composer. The composer is a similar role to Octavian mm. from Rosen Cavalier. From Rosen Cavalier, it goes back to. Mozart, actually, in Marriage of Figaro, to portray a young boy, a uh, maybe a 14-year-old boy, he used a woman playing the part of the young boy. And Bellini did that in the opera of Romeo and Juliet called I Capuleti di Montecchi, the Capulets and the Montagues. Mm. And Romeo is played by a mezzo. And in Ariadne, in this duet with Zerbinetta and the composer, at the very end, Strauss quotes himself, not the same rhythm, but the same notes. He uh, he uses Octavian's theme. Bum, ba, bum, ba, bum, bum, oh. ba. That's embedded slow motion. Ah, it's uh, in the oh, strings. We needed the, you to point that out for us. Thank yeah. you. So, so you 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 can hear that's just in the last measure or two of of the duet. You hear Octavian's theme. It's it's nice to sometimes to to listen to these little quotes. Well, you have to have a well-trained ear that remembers right. and can recognize these things. And Correct. we're grateful to you for pointing this out to us. <laughs> well, we're going to work towards hearing a little bit of that duet between the composer mm-hmm. and Zerbinetta because it's an interesting interaction between them. In some ways, they're at odds with each other because they're representatives of these two different art forms who mm-hmm. are being told by the major domo, I'm so sorry. Well, he's not really that sorry. (laughs) The fireworks must start at nine o'clock. Therefore, your two very capable entertainment groups have been paid and my master will get his money's worth. You both perform your entertainments. However, 
not one after the other, but at the same time. Right. This throws the composer into tizzies. It throws Ariadne, the prima donna, into tizzies. Right. It throws the tenor who's going to play Bacchus right. into tizzies. Zerbanetta and her troupe, well, they're used to improvising. So, okay, tell us the story. We'll figure it out. We'll mm-hmm. figure it out. They're fine. And meanwhile, there's a little something that happens between the composer and Zerbanetta. Absolutely. The composer's supposed to be very young being played by a mezzo-soprano. And Zerbinetta is, I always like to think that Zerbinetta's a little bit older. The composer is maybe 18 and Zerbinetta's 23. She's certainly more worldly. Absolutely. And all of a sudden, it's kind of love at first sight on the part of the, uh, the composer. Not, maybe not first sight, love at fourth sight. <laughs> Feeling things he's never felt before. Exactly. And we have, after a very kind of talky prologue, towards the end we get this wonderful romantic duet that, for the most part, I feel that Richard Strauss and Puccini compose in the speed of speech. Now, sometimes we speak more slowly, sometimes we speak more quickly. But in Ariadne, he kind of goes against that a little bit. Hmm. In this duet, it's almost as if time stands still. And the phrases, it's its difficult to sing for that reason. The phrases just sort of float there. Oh. And for the first time, he's using a lot of suspensions, harmonically suspending the way Wagner used that so often in Tristan he just suspends you think it's going to end but it doesn't it keeps it keeps either going up by half steps or modulating into unexpected keys and Strauss uses that similar technique in this duet and he will do that again in the finale of the opera with Bacchus and Ariadne but it's wonderfully wonderfully lyric and a little slower, a little more operatic than a lot of the music of some of his other other operas, like Rosa Cuddly.
to Opera for Everyone, and I am talking to Maestro Joseph Frischino, and we're talking about Ariadne auf Naxos by Richard Strauss. And that was nearly the end of the prologue, which feels to us like the first act. And that those two female voices you heard were actually a male and female character, Zerbinetta and the composer. A little bit at odds? a little bit infatuated. Mm-hmm. We're just about at the end of this prologue, and Maestro, tell us how this prologue concludes. Yes, uh, the composer sings this wonderful aria about how divine that music is, and it's it's just the greatest. Whereupon, mm. at the end of the, of, of the aria, the comedians burst in, and he has serious second thoughts he tells the music teacher i never should have allowed this to happen you should never have allowed this to happen <laughs> and and it's too late we're about to end just a page a page of mu- of quick music brings this prologue to a conclusion and we're off to hear a comedy and a tragedy simultaneously yes as as demanded by the major domo Exactly. Well, before we move into the opera, I'd like to take a moment to give thanks to the people involved in the CD that we just listened to. The role of Zerbinetta was sung by Rita Streich and the composer by Ermagard Siegfried. Siegfried, yes. Imgard. Imgard Siegfried. I should let you say this, honestly. <laughs> And coming up, we will also be hearing from Ariadne on this CD, sung by the incomparable Elisabeth Schwarzkopf, and the role of Bacchus, the tenor Rudolf Schock. Yes. This is a recording that was made in 1954 with the Philharmonia Orchestra, led by Herbert von Karian. Yes. Also, 
Coming up, we are going to be listening to a recording that was led by our very own maestro, Joseph Rachinho, and I'm going to let you introduce that right now. Sure. This is from a performance with the Boston Lyric Opera that I conducted in January of 1991. It was the first opera that Boston Lyric ever gave. The first one. The very first one. The, the, it was uh, <gasps> Back then it was newly formed, and it was the first time the orchestra was put together and the first time they were playing together as an orchestra. How exciting. It had, uh, as Ariadne, the incomparable soprano Deborah Voigt, who went on to a glorious career at the Metropolitan Opera yes. and sang this role many times there, but this was her very first Ariadne. Mm. And we will hear an excerpt of her aria, Es gibt ein Reich. It's the second aria she sings, and we'll, we'll be hearing it from this production that was done in Boston Lyric. That's wonderful. Well, and I'd also like to mention that Boston Lyric Opera has an online streaming service available. It's a subscription service that if you're interested, please go look for them. It's called Opera Box TV. You can also Google Boston Lyric Opera and find it that way. But Ariadne of Naxos is currently available along with some other offerings from Boston Lyric Opera. So check it out and you can see this entire production Mm -hmm. and see some of the things that the maestro has been referring to and see the production from back in 1991 that was Mm -hmm. I have just learned the very first production of this wonderful company, Boston Lyric Opera. Yes, and in this, I also, there were so many good good people in the production, but I especially want to mention the Zerbinetta. Her name is Erie Mills, had a wonderful career at the Mad at City Opera all over the world, and she happens to be my sister-in-law. Oh. I, uh, I introduced her <laughs> in 1985 to my brother, and they were married less than a year later. Love always blooms in opera, doesn't yeah, it? It sure does. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, let's hear this Ariadne aria, and we'll fill you in what happens in this opera within the opera.
That was beautiful. Thank you so much for bringing us that lovely music. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> well, in this story of this opera with Ariadne here mm-hmm. on this desert island, could you could you tell us what's happening? What what is she feeling? Because we know she's been abandoned on a desert island by her lover Theseus. Mm-hmm. Well, she wants death, mm. and in fact. In the whole first part of the final duet, she thinks that Bacchus is Hades that has come to take her in death. And for the most part, she's very serious and very sad. And the aria that you just heard kind of paints her character for most of the opera. She is abandoned by by, uh, Theseus. And uh, and she yearns to die. It's uh, in a a way, it's a kind of very, I think, very subtle tweaking of Wagner, who uh, wrote (laughs) who wrote about love and death. I mean, of course, that's the subject of Tristan, but it's even very important in The Ring with with the idea of true love can only be uh, culminated by death. And of course, Mm. there's the earlier English usage of the word die, which, yes, it means to cease living, but it also is another way of saying orgasm. And I think that Strauss, I think... Well, there's something new. <laughs> you, you, you mean you never heard that yet? In, 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 Afraid uh, not. <laughs> in, in, no, in Shakespeare, I die, I die. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It was I a, missed that a, day in English class. Well, <laughs> and I think it must... Uh, not only was it true in, in Shakespearean times, but I have a feeling that's exactly that kind of that kind of pun was in Wagner's mind too. Uh, but you have this feeling of love and death, and the orchestra is very is very noble sounding, very rich, even though it's only mm. a chamber orchestra, and subdued, properly subdued, and with this glorious kind of climactic ending, although as in Love and Death, you have the the big phrase just before the end and the aria proper ends quietly. Yeah, it's interesting because in the prologue, Zerbinetta has been sort of poking fun at Ariadne. Mm-hmm. Oh, the audience is going to be bored with you. Mm-hmm. You take yourself so seriously. Right. And, and she does. And she does. And here she is right. being opera serious. Right. And it's not going to be terribly long before we see Zerbinetta and her and her troupe, her four lovers, right. as her particular performance is called. It's, right. Uh, Zerbinetta and her four lovers are going to show up to improvise and lighten the mood. And it is a little bit of this, this clash of cultural art forms, this highbrow, this lowbrow, or the followers of Dionysus versus the followers of Apollo and I mean, it's it's all kinds of of contrasts and clashes that are they're having fun with them, Strauss and Hoffmannsthal. Oh, I think. Oh yes, and I I really think that this is about the closest, other than Tolonenspiegel, that Strauss got to writing comedy mm. because uh, certainly Salome and uh, Electra are not comedies. Not comedy, and and <laughs> even and even uh, Rosenkavalier. There's the story about uh, Meisterzinger, um, the opera of, of uh, very long, six, oh, six hours long of Wagner. 
And uh, someone asked this well-known conductor, well, isn't that uh, supposed to be a comedy? And he says, yes. And basically, a comedy can also be defined as an opera where nobody dies at the end. And and and, uh, and, and he says, he, he says, well, it's not very funny. And he said, well, German humor is no laughing matter. Oh, dear. <laughs> Which is a wonderful answer to that, you know, because Rosa Cavalier is not terribly funny either, you know, but uh, it has its ha-ha moments. It has its lighter yes. moments. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and nobody dies. Yes, yes. There's a little blood drawn, but right. very little. Right, very little. Very little. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Well, Zerbinetta is is an interesting character here. She's she's going to have fun with her men. Oh, yes. And in both productions that I did at this opera, the master of the house, this, this very, the Reichsmanners in Wien, the richest man in Vienna, was present in Boston. He was in this little box right near the uh, the stage itself. And at one point in her aria, Zerbinetta sings some lines to him uh, to try to bring, oh. bring bring this in. And she will certainly lighten the mood. And in the excerpt coming up of her aria, listen very carefully to the different orchestration. Now, it was a, it's a chamber orchestra, but what was very noble and with a lot of rich string writing, in this version, it's going to be mostly the piano playing with more woodwinds that you hear mm. and a little bit more like a, a musical, like an operetta would have been in uh, in the time this this piece was written. Right, contrasting the, the yes, serious opera of the Greek... right myth right which does hark back to the origins of uh, opera absolutely the oldest opera that is still part of what we call our standard literature yeah. is orfeo of Monteverdi. Yeah. as recently as now um, mm. i went to see an opera at the metropolitan called eurydice which is based yes. on the Orpheus legend. So it, it was done by all kinds of composers throughout the ages, uh, from from the very serious ones of Monteverdi and Gluck to the comedy uh, Orpheus en fer, Orpheus in the in, in the underworld yes. by Offenbach. So we had fun with that on opera for everyone too. Right, right. So <laughs> so the, the the Orpheus legend, but there's also other legends. There was uh, uh, Mozart's opera Idomeneo was based on a, a Greek story of yes. Idomeneo coming back from the Trojan Wars. And there's a, a little bit less of it now, but it was very big in the uh, in the late 17th and through most of the 18th century. It, the subject of, of opera seria. Right. And I was also thinking it's an interesting contrast. Not that we want to talk about Wagner too much, but mm-hmm. it's an interesting contrast because he was more interested in the Teutonic myths right. than the Greek myths. Right. And that's Absolutely. just another way of... of Strauss differentiating himself, yeah, yeah, possibly. Well, Zerbinetta has fun, and and she brings in another stylistic difference, I believe. Though you can tell me more about mm-hmm. that, because she sounds a little bel canto to my ear. Absolutely, since she is an Italian, a part of this Italian troupe, Commedia dell'arte. Yes, he harkens back to the most florid kind of of uh, writing. In fact, a fellow called Fink, 
who wrote an important biography of Strauss in 1917, he said 1917, that, that's well before Strauss's death. Oh, yes, right. And he writes a year after he wrote Ariadne, basically. And he says, in Zerbinetta, Strauss out Rossini's Donizetti. <laughs> <laughs> Three cheers to Strauss for the Valcanto yeah, mastery then. Absolutely. absolutely. Uh, and in this case, uh, Strauss, besides a completely different orchestration for Zebinetta's aria, he has a, a completely different style of vocal. He, he really harkens yeah. back to the bel canto in, in a way he harkened back to Mozart in Rosenkavalier, as opposed to the kind of granite power of Electra. Another Greek myth that he yes. enjoyed. Yes. Oh, there's just so much. Strauss seemed to really enjoy what he did. Oh. Or at least played with it. He very modestly said of himself, I may not be a great composer, but I'm the greatest level two composer in history. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Well, let's hear Zerbinetta now. Yes. <laughs> Oh, 
This is Opera for Everyone, and we're listening to Ariadne of Naxos. I'm Pat Wright, your host, and I am here with Maestro Joseph Rachino. Maestro, thank you so much for being with us and helping us, and thank you for writing that amazing book of yours, Conducting Opera where theater meets music. I recommend it to anyone who wants to learn a little bit more about opera and how it goes together. And it's helpful if you perhaps want to conduct, if you're a musician and, sure. or if you're just like me and you are interested in operas. Well, you know, I try to write it for the conductor who maybe not so experienced in opera as opposed to just orchestral conducting. I try to write it for the stage director or singer who is involved in doing opera. And I try to write it for an avid fan. You don't have to be a musician. You don't even have to be able to read music to get something out of this book. I try to do it on on that level. You do have to have uh, some knowledge of these operas because you're a fan and you've, you've become involved in them. You've gone to them, you've listened to the recordings of them, you've gone to maybe live performance. But it was really a, a labor of love on my part. It took, you know, a number of years. And I really feel it's it's quite unique. There are works, something like that, as far as orchestral repertoire. And there are plenty of, of books on opera but uh, this is this really is about what a conductor does in preparing an opera and how it's structured. When you hear the, the term, the architecture of an opera, it basically comes down to the mathematics, the arithmetic of the opera, how one section fits with another. But there's not a lot a of math in this book. No, yeah, that, that's, no, that's no. in the background. That's you, in the it's background. in your that's head. A, yes. It's but, a very but, readable book. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and what I try to do is make it readable on each of the different levels. Mm-hmm. Well, I can only speak for, for the non-musician, and it's very readable. Well, thank um, you. All, there, there are bits of it that don't apply to me um, mm-hmm. that I did go over quickly, but it's full of these interesting little nuggets. Um, mm-hmm. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank well, you. back to Ariadne of Naxos. And we're working our way towards the finale. Yes. And uh, first of all, I want to say I love Zerbinetta's aria mm-hmm. here. This is this piece where she starts out speaking, singing to the bereft Ariadne. And it's not just that she comes in happy, trying to cheer her up. She really comes in and says, wow, sister, you're really sad. And what I love is she tries to connect with her. She tries to say, oh, don't ruin yourself over a lost love. And she might not approach it the same way that Ariadne does. She might say, just find another man, mm-hmm. which essentially is what she's saying. But it's it's sweet in so many ways because she does try to connect with her woman to woman. And I really appreciate that. And that's something that... You see in De Rosenkavalier between Sophie and the Marshallen in some ways, but mm-hmm. but I like this scene between these two women. Oh, I, I think ab- I think it's beautiful. Absolutely. And what is quite terrific is that you have the contrasting mood and orchestration of the serious opera, the Ariadne, and the more Italianate, kind of almost semi pop, bel canto yeah. pop style of, yeah. of the comedy. And <laughs> yes. And in the finale, with the arrival of Bacchus, 
Strauss will elevate the the quality, and it all of a sudden it becomes at the very end very grand. And what I love about it is, in the finale, we have a little tiny bit where Zerbinetta, now that Ariadne has happily made it up with Bacchus, and she's forgotten about Theseus. And yeah, she, she doesn't need a king; she's got a god now. Right, exactly. <laughs> and and uh, Zerbinetta quotes the ending of Ferraria, the words, and says, you see, I was right. So <laughs> in that way, Strauss elevates the musical mood and wraps both stories together. It's lovely. With one sentence. Yeah. Zerbinetta. Yeah. A wise woman. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, Maestro, thank you so much for joining us here on Opera for Everyone. I am so grateful for your time. Well, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. And now the finale of Ariadne auf Naxos.
Thanks for listening to Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, joined today by Maestro Joseph Rachinho. I invite you to check out Maestro Rachinho's book and YouTube channel, both under the title Conducting Opera, Where Theater Meets Music. You can also find the full opera, Ariadne auf Naxos, conducted by Maestro Rachinho in 1991 on Boston Lyric Opera's streaming service, Opera Box TV. Opera can be challenging, but everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable. Because we believe opera is for everyone.